Hey, so let me say thank you guys so much for letting me be here this weekend. It really has been um, fun for me. Uh, I mean, it's been, there have been some hard conversations. Thank you guys for sharing some of your stories with me. I really do mean that. And what I want to do tonight is um, we're talking about compassion and care. And the way I want to do it is I actually want to look at that passage that Robert mentioned that so struck William Cooper and was part of William Cooper actually being converted in one of his first real serious bouts in the insane asylum with depression is what did he see in Jesus in John 11? And what I want to do is kind of read not all of John 11, but a chunk of John 11 and get something before us. And really what I want to do is kind of talk in two ways. One, I want to sort of just two, two parts. One is talk about the compassion of Jesus we see in, in John 11 as our pattern. And then second, I want to talk more practically about how do we practically care for each other, um, you know, for those of us who are depressed and anxious. So kind of two things, the compassion of Jesus in John 11 as our pattern, and then second, um, how do we practically care for each other? So let me read uh, John 11. I'm going to uh, read 1 to 6 and then skip down to 20 and to 37. So let me just read it for us. Now, a certain man was ill. You probably know this story if you've grown up in the church. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Skip down to verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. We have the doer and the beer. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and, he is, call- and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let me pray for us and I want to dive in to what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. Jesus I pray that you would love us or or show us the way that you love us is the same as the way you love your friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
Lord, would you um, let us see what William Cooper began to see about your compassion, your mercy, and your grace for your people, your love for your people? Lord, would you enter into our deepest darkness, our deepest places of despair, and would you meet us in this place and do wondrous and wonderful things? And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite authors, is, his name is Jonathan Franzen, and he wrote this article in the New York Times probably five years ago, maybe now, and it was called uh, Technology Provides an Alternative to Love, and he's, he's asking this question, how he's basically waxing about, or kind of waxing eloquent about how social media has really disabled us in terms of our ability to love and see and move toward each other, and I'm going to read this, what is one of my favorite parag- couple paragraphs from that article Here's what he says. He says, I may be overstating the case a little bit. Very probably you're sick to death of hearing social media disrespected by cranky 51-year-olds. My aim here is mainly to set up a contrast between the narcissistic tendencies of technology and the problem of actual love. My friend Alice Siebold likes to talk about getting down in the pit and loving somebody. She has in mind the dirt that love inevitably splatters on the mirror of our self-regard. The simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. Sooner or later, for example, you're going to find yourself in a hideous screaming fight, and you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself don't like at all, things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in-control, funny, likable person. Something realer than likability has come out in you, and suddenly you're having an actual life. Suddenly, there's a real choice to be made, not a fake consumer choice between an Android or an iPhone, but a question, do I love this person? And for the other person, does this person love me? What I love about John 11, where I want to start, is that we get to see Jesus get down in the pit and love his friends. So I want to spend a little bit of time, most of our time, in John 11, and then I want to kind of do some more practical, how do you love a friend who's depressed? But let's just think with me for a second. Let's get into John 11, because I think this is the compassion. If we're going to have the kind of compassion that, that we need as, if you are a depression anxious person, that we need, and then if you're not one that you need to show, that we need to show each other, I think this is the pattern here. So I just want to ask a couple of questions of this, of this passage as we work through it that I think have been incredibly helpful for me and I hope are helpful for you. First is just to ask the question, why does he wait? That's the weirdest part, right? Like if you look at verse, verse 5 and 6, he loved them. I mean, John goes out of his way to say he loved them. They were real friends. They were more than Facebook friends. He, Jesus considered them some of his best friends. They were more than Facebook friends. He had eaten Martha's home-cooked food. Mary had like, been at his feet and smelled what his feet were like. He had probably slept when they had these house parties in Lazarus' bed. These were, they were much deeper than Facebook friends. And so when you read verse 6, you're like, what in the world? We would think it would say he loved his friends, therefore he saddled his donkey and hightailed it to Bethany. And instead, you saw it, it's weird, it says, and therefore he waited. What do we do with that? Here's what I think we do with that. Is that Jesus loves you and me enough to disappoint us. Because he doesn't want our hope to be in what he can do for us, which is what Martha talks about. He wants our hope to be in him, in who he is for us, and who he is to us. Uh, I love that my friend John Acuff had this post a while back. Um, 
on his blog. He used to do that blog, this blog called Stuff Christians Like that was really hilarious. And he had this post that was simply called Great Sex, Flat Abs, and Jesus. And what had happened was he had gone into a Walmart and he'd gone into the book section of a Walmart and he noticed something kind of eerie. He noticed that when he, what, he was, what, what he would read on the front cover of a men's magazine, like a, like a men's health magazine, was eerily similar to what he would read on the back cover of these Christian books because they were kind of right across from each other. So he had some examples, uh, number one in the list. So he had this little test. He said, can you tell me, was this from a Christian book or was this from a men's health magazine? So number one was... Build your perfect life and strip away stress for good. Back cover of a Christian book, front cover of a men's health magazine. Or number eight, uncover the proven process that will lead to a life of success and total fulfillment. Back cover of a Christian book, front cover of a men's health magazine. And he kind of did, he had like 10 of these. And then he wrote this, and I've always loved what he wrote. He said this, he said, do I ever go to God with a laundry list of better demands. Give me a better marriage, a better ministry, a better life, a better job, a better everything. Do I chase the blessings of God sometimes more than the presence? Do I ever treat God like a really, really good self-help guru that is there to meet my needs? And he says, yes, yes I do. But I don't want God, I love this line, I don't want God to simply be a new vehicle for the things I want. I want God to be what I want, I want him to be enough. And I think the reality for those of us, maybe the painful thing you're asking is, why would you not take this painful thing from me, God? Or why would you not take this painful thing from the life of my child or the life of my friend? Maybe that's the question you're asking this whole weekend. Maybe that's the question that sits heavy on your heart tonight. And the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus loves us too much to let us put our hope in what he can do for us. He loves us too much. He loves us enough to disappoint us so that our hope will be instead in him and who he is for us. And the question, the first question I want to ask, there are a couple questions I want to ask from John 11 to my heart and your heart. The first one is, where does Jesus need to disappoint you? So that your hope might not be in what he can do for you, but that your hope might be in him. But there's more, I think, for us in, in his compassion because he doesn't just wait. He does eventually show up. And the second question I want to kind of ask is, why, why does he weep? That's the second thing that comes out that's a little shocking in this passage. And here's, if we go through the narrative, Jesus does finally show up. And it's an awkward narrative because what in the world is he going to say? If you've ever been to a funeral, you know this feeling. Think of the last funeral you've been to. You know, I'll never forget going to see one of my fraternity brothers. This was probably three, maybe three years ago now, whose dad suddenly died of a heart attack. And I hadn't seen him probably in five years, but I knew my wife's father had died and I knew how much it meant just for old friends to show up and just be there at the visitation and be there at the funeral. So I decided I was going to drive to Boiling Springs, South Carolina and just show up at this visitation. And I'm walking into the room and we're in that awkward thing where we're walking around the, you know, where we get in line to go say hello to the family. And I haven't, again, seen my friend in five years and I'm standing in line and I'm thinking, first, I don't know what to do with my hands. And then I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to say to my friend? Like, what can you say? What in the world, what words can you say to someone who is in this place of pain and loss? And I remember making my way and, and finally got to my friend and he looked at me and he just burst into tears. And we just hugged for what felt like five minutes and all I could say was, I'm so sorry. And what I love about this is that's exactly what Jesus does with Mary. 
when he sees her, he, he bursts into tears. And I love the way Tim Keller draws this out. Is he made a really profound point that I think is important for us when we begin to think about compassion, but he, but he is different with Martha. With Martha, he has truth. And with Mary, he has tears. And aren't those the two things that we need? Aren't there places and times where what we need is a friend to speak the truth to us in love and tell us a hard thing that maybe we've been needing to hear for a long time? And don't we need friends to be like Jesus in that moment and, and to lovingly remind us of the promises and the truths of the gospel? And what Jesus does is he reminds Martha in this powerful way that he is the resurrection and the life. She can safely put her hope in him that he loves her and is powerful and is going to raise her brother, which she doesn't know is coming yet. But he confronts her in this loving, gentle way with truth. But yet with Mary, he's so different. Because Mary doesn't need truth, Jesus decides. Or Jesus discerns. Instead, she simply needs him to cry with her. And don't we need that sometimes? Don't we just need a friend to come and just look at us in the face and say, I'm so sorry, and cry real tears that meet our own tears. Don't we need both of these things? And Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, discerns exactly what we need. And that's part of how we do compassion with each other. When we, when we come to think about our, our deepest, darkest, depressed seasons and the way that we live with depression and anxiety is we need both of these things still. And we need to do these things with each other. And there's a real sense of what Jesus in his compassion does in our own lives. But what are those tears? Can we just think, make sense a little bit of those tears? And I think, because the question is, why is he crying? And I think there are actually three different reasons he's crying. The first reason I think he's crying is he's crying at death. This isn't Lion King, Elton John, circle of life. Like, yeah, this is tears. Death makes Jesus angry. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not this circle of life that is natural. Death is this unnatural intrusion into God's world that is not the way it should be and Jesus has come to do, do battle with it to, to, to defeat it and he's crying these tears of anger one of the things that's brought out in this passage I'm not a Greek guy but one of the things in, as I studied it was the word that is used about Jesus deeply troubled and distressed was a word that was used of animals in the day that would get would get really like a horse that would get very stirred and angry and that's what it says Jesus did in his tears he got angry at death it's not the way it's supposed to be and there's there's, he does that still as he looks at the brokenness and the fallenness of the world. So he's crying because of death, but he's also crying, we could say, secondly, because of his friend's death. I'll never forget one of my first, my first ever intern. And we were talking about, I was talking to her about how I was so depressed about the size of large group that night. And I was just, I was just having a kind of a depressed morning and we were having coffee at Starbucks in Statesboro, Georgia. And I remember her saying, Sammy, do you believe that the Lord doesn't just love you, but that he likes you? Do you believe that he doesn't just love you and tolerate you, but he likes you and enjoys you? And I never even thought about that. But what else does it mean that Jesus is the friend, that he calls me and you his friends? And so Jesus really is crying because he really does care about his friend's death in the way it's impacted his other friends. Jesus isn't indifferent to our sadness and suffering. He's not indifferent to our depression and anxiety. It moves him. This is, where, this is what I think about. Sometimes I think the way I see Jesus and the way you see Jesus, I don't know if you're a Seinfeld person, but I think, if I'm being honest, I see him like the Soup Nazi. You remember the Soup Nazi episode? <laughs> so the Soup Nazi, if you don't know the episode, it's this 
You know, they call him the soup Nazi because this is a soup shop in New York. And if you don't stand in line and go through the line and order the soup in just the right way, he does that thing where he says, no soup for you, get out of my store, never come back. It happens to George in the episode. It's pretty hilarious. <laughs> One time I used this illustration and a student, uh, the, they left behind their notes in the room and all it said was, Jesus doesn't equal the soup Nazi. And I don't think I've ever felt like more of a failure as a teacher in that moment. <laughs> but I think sometimes that's how we see him. That he is indifferent to us. He doesn't care. He doesn't like us. He might tolerate us in his love, but he doesn't like us and enjoy us and feel deep tears of love and cry tears of love. That's why it's interesting. You know, it's not just death and in his friend's death, but it's also, I think he's crying because he's thinking about, this is interesting timing in John's gospel because really, Jesus, this has got to be crazy for Jesus to process because it's so similar to what his own death is going to be like. The death that he's going to die out of love for his friends. That's why Caiaphas, if we were to go to the end of the chapter, Caiaphas does that thing where he says, you know, uh, where he basically says, will he, you know, maybe it is good for one man to die for the people, which is exactly what Jesus is going to do. No doubt he's thinking of the emotional and spiritual suffering that's coming for him. And so there's tears of anger, these tears of love, but there are also these tears of grace. Jesus doesn't just disappoint us in his love. Jesus moves near to us and weeps with us in his love. My favorite scene out of all of Narnia, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan, and my favorite scene is from Magician's Nephew. And it's a scene, if you remember the story, Diggory, the young boy, his mother is dying. And all he wants Aslan to do, he's desperate for Aslan to come and save his mom. And finally, toward the end of the book, Aslan comes but he doesn't save his mom. And here's how the conversation between Diggory and Aslan goes. I love it so much. Here's what, how it goes. Diggory says, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up until then, Lewis says, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws in them. But now in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. A few years ago, a friend and I were in Starbucks, and we were processing my dad's story and he was kind of trying to walk me through that for me to ever grow and forgive my dad and forever to, to kind of become whole, that I was going to have to go back and to 12-year-old Sammy and look him in the face and say, Sammy, dad is not coming home. And here I am openly weeping in the Starbucks, trying to play it cool. And the thought that overwhelmed me was Jesus saying, yes, and I want to go and weep with you there. Friends, where does Jesus want to take you by the hand and weep with you and just cry at the brokenness, that you've, at the woundedness that you've experienced? Where does he want to weep with you? I love the way that one commentator says it. He says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would cry with me? Where does he want to weep with you? But he does something else. There's something else in John 11 that's so important for us to see when we think about being, having the compassion of Jesus in our own darkness and despair. And it's the simple story of why he wakes Lazarus. Why does he wake Lazarus 
from the dead. I think I've always looked at the story and I've thought, I always look at the miracles of Jesus and my first, my, my first inclination is to think Jesus is kind of showing up and be like, what's up, look at my power, worship, you know I'm powerful, this is awesome, check it out. And that's how I used to always understand it. And then that's just not what the miracles are. I mean, there's part of it. But it's much more about Jesus undoing the sad things, about Jesus bringing a new heavens and a new earth, Jesus giving a foretaste of what's to come for us and the resurrection and the life that he brings. And I love this image. He raises Lazarus. We didn't read this part, but at the end of the story, spoiler alert, is he raises Lazarus from the dead. He calls him out. He he unwraps his grave clothes. Why does he do it? I think he does it as more than proving his power. I think he's giving us this glimpse that you and I are desperate for, especially if you're a fellow struggler with depression or anxiety, a glimpse of the, new, the newness that he has come to bring, of the way to, to say it, no one can say it better than Tolkien, to make the sad things come untrue in your life and in my life, the day that we long for where he will wipe away every tear. When my daughter was young, she would do this thing when she would cry when she was about two years old and she would cry and she would do this thing where she would say, Daddy, my eyes are wet, my eyes are wet. And what she wanted me to do was go and just wipe away the tears as they were dripping down her cheek. And it always was just this small picture for me what God, what the Lord Jesus is going to do with us in the day when we have the great wedding supper of the Lamb, the way he is making all things new. And I think in Lazarus' resurrection, he's giving us a foretaste. The way I like to think about it is, I don't know, um, I, I, I want to say I'm a foodie, but that sounds pretentious. <laughs> I like food. <laughs> I did. I had, I had my Wendy's spicy chicken today, which might have been a worse idea than meeting with Lottie before yesterday because it's really sitting heavy right now. But it was delicious. And it brought some measure of comfort. But that, that moment when we go, you know, to go out to eat and that moment when the waiter, we order a bottle of wine, if you're into that, I'm into that. And the waiter brings the bottle of wine and, and as I've grown older, like I'm now the point person when the waiter's like, sir, may I pour you a taste? And I'm like, yes, sir, please fine, sir, pour me that taste. And the waiter pours the taste and I pretend like I'm not, I'm at my fakest when I'm pretending like I know what I'm doing here. I'm like, oh yes, hmm, smells delicious. <laughs> but I think part of what Jesus is doing here is Lazarus' resurrection is a for because what's the waiter doing? He's saying this is a foretaste of what's to come in this bottle. This is, the, this is a taste of what's about to come. And Jesus is doing the same thing. This is a taste. He's giving us a taste in in Lazarus' resurrection of how good and healing that day is going to be. Where we sang that first night. What is that beautiful song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion, where we sang, we're going to together say great things he has done. And there's going to be no more depression. And there's going to be no more anxiety. And we will feast and drink wine with Jesus and laugh and sing together and there will be no more tears. And you and I need to remind each other, this is real. This is not the fairy tale of Christianity. This is the truth, the deep truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And part of stewarding your depression and part of stewarding your anxiety is to be reminded and to remind each other in a compassionate way, not in some false or jesus jukey way, but in a way that really does say this is really going to come to an end when Jesus finally sets up his kingdom in the earth. I think a lot about, so what do we do with that? I think about, um, you know, I do a lot of weddings as our RAF campus minister, and I'll never forget this one wedding we did in Augusta, Georgia. My daughter, she's really into ballet. She kind of dance has become her, I don't want to say it's an idol because that sounds cynical, 
she's just really into dance. So it's like her thing, ballet is her thing. And she was getting into it at the time. She was probably five or six. And part of why I get nervous is I've seen Black Swan and I don't like, you know, I'm nervous about that. So, but she's at this wedding. So at the time, she's five or six. She, part of what she loved to do is she loved the wedding gets over, go to the reception. Like she would make a beeline to the dance floor because she couldn't wait for the dancing to start. Like that's my nightmare. Like I find the corner with the food and the, and the drink, and I find my, sit in my corner, and my daughter was like making a beeline for the dance floor. And this one wedding, she was kind of breaking it down. I'm, I'm not gonna show you, but she was dan- doing her dancing thing. And then these older girls came into the dance floor, and they were like really knew how to dance. And they were like really breaking it down. And I watched my daughter crumple under the floor and just like look at these girls with such disgust and anger. <laughs> And so we get back to the minivan, which is a whole other story of depression. Um, and I'm trying, to be a good, I'm trying to be a good dad. So I'm trying to engage my, but it's that thing in parenting sometimes when you're trying not to cry slash laugh at your kids at the same time. No one ever tells you that about parenting. So it's one of those moments where, because here's the thing is I could feel, isn't it hard when you see, and maybe this is some of your fear, if you, maybe, you, maybe you're here and you, you wrestle deeply with anxiety or depression, and maybe your fear is bringing a child into that, right? Because it is a hard thing as a parent when you begin to see your brokenness and the way it has affected your five-year-old. And so I really am fighting back tears, and I say, Jane Mack, you know what's wrong? And she says, those girls. I hate those girls. <laughs> I mean, we're real through gritted teeth. They're better dancers than me. And it really did break my heart because don't we so often miss the point of what Jesus is inviting us into? Here was my daughter, much like her dad, who was so filled with jealousy and so filled with self-hatred or bitterness that she was missing the entire point of that wedding. And I think so often in our lives we can get so self-consumed that we're missing the point of what Jesus is inviting to even in the midst of our suffering and the way that we're almost invited into this life of love with each other, but we can be so self-focused that we miss the point. And so the question, I think the last question I want to ask from John 11 is where does Jesus need to reorient you outward in resurrection hope that does start with yourself, but then moves you outward toward your friends in this community and love? And that's the second thing I want to do is just think, okay, well, how would it do that? How would it move us to care for each other practically? How would it move us to hold, I love this idea of of holding each other's stories carefully, of really doing the hard work of knowing and seeing each other in our pain, and yet loving each other in this bold and gentle way. And I just really want to get a little bit practical, really just six thoughts, this is what I'm going to close with about how we can, I think, begin to practically care for the depressed and anxious among us. And so I really, I think I'm saying this as a depressed person to those of you who are here who are on the outside looking in. I think this is a conversation that I'd love to start, but this is from my perspective, and I think the the perspective of my depressed and anxious friends, some of the things that have been helpful to think about and how we can care for each other. Here's the first one. I'm just going to say it like this. Keep the pen in the shame grenade. Keep the pen in the in the shame grenade. Here's what I mean. Depressed people, anxious people, feel tremendous amounts of shame. Uh, The voice that we hear most often is like the anti-Robin Williams and Good Will Hunting. 
It's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And the problem typically is not that, that, you, that they don't know, that we don't know what to do. We do. The problem is finding the strength to do what we know we should do. We're carrying a heavy load. Don't be the kind of friend who adds to it. Be the kind of friend who helps lighten it. Don't patronize. Empathize. I love the way Brene Brown says it. She says, shame, there's one thing shame cannot survive, is empathy. Keep the pen in the shame grenade. Second, don't be simplistic. We said uh, last night that depression is like a bruise. Sometimes you know how it got there. Sometimes you genuinely don't. Um, And what makes it hard is there's nothing worse than treating it simplistically. This is my theme all weekend. Please, it's not always as simple as take medicine. It's not always simple as go see a counselor. It's not always as simple as repent of your sin or your idols. Usually all three of those things will be a, a helpful part of the healing process, but it's not as simple as one of them, typically. To make one of those the end-all, be-all is extremely unhelpful. Help them simplify things, absolutely. Help us simplify things. But don't be simplistic. Three, take the physical as seriously as the spiritual. Don't give a depressed friend a book. Give them a steak, like an incredible steak, with a loaded baked potato, a nice bottle of Merlot, and if you want to get really spiritual, maybe two pans of Sister Schubert rolls. Oh, Talk about lifting depression, just for a moment. <laughs> but, I mean, truly, this is the beauty of what God, how God meets Elijah. We mentioned it briefly. The beauty of how God meets Elijah in the cave is he didn't show up. This is what's so, it's beautiful to me. He doesn't show up and give him a lecture. He doesn't show up and give him a devotional. He shows up and gives him a meal and then lets him sleep. He takes his body incredibly seriously. Take the physical as seriously as the spiritual. Because truly, we said last night, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap or to take a walk or to take your medicine. Take the physical as seriously as the spiritual. Four, this one's a little bit harder. Embrace awkward silence. Embrace awkward silence. Um, If depressed people could take a book title for a life motto... This is, this is one. the other tattoo that I wish I had the courage to get. It's a Nick Hornby book, and it's simply titled More Baths, Less Talking. <laughs> I, just, I love that. Maybe you don't love that. but <laughs> I know I'm singing in depression when I do the two-bath-a-day thing or I'm bath in the morning to get through the day and bath at night to get to the end of the day. But if someone is really depressed, the last thing typically, if they're really depressed and really anxious, the last thing they want to do or need to do is talk about why they're really depressed and anxious. There's, there is space just to be quiet. There is space just to be with them. They, and this is what, I think this is hard. Sometimes if you're on the outside, this feels like, this feels like a, a rude or a, it feels like a pushing away. And can I just say from someone who, has, has experienced and done this. That's not at all what it is. They, they want you. We want you around. We desperately do. We just want you to embrace the awkward silence with us because sometimes life is hard and we don't have all the answers. And that means sometimes we can just sit in silence together and, and there's something you, that can be really healing about that. Um, fifth, uh, help 
us take ourselves less seriously. I think one of the best things I said this last night you can do for someone who's depressed or anxious is to help them take themselves a little more lightly. I love the story out of Martin Luther's life. You know, he, we know we talked about he struggled severely with depression. And he would get to points where he would spend entire days in bed. And his wife, Catherine, this might, this might be passive aggressive, but it's beautiful. She would dress herself in all black and she put a veil on. And when he would notice, he would finally kind of wake up and notice. He would say, uh, who, whose funeral are you going to? And she would say, God's, because the way you're acting so hopeless, he must be dead. <laughs> Maybe don't do that, because that, that is some that is some serious passive-aggressive game. <laughs> Respect to Catherine Luther. But I do think, I mean, this is part of, part of what my wife in a, in a healthy way can do for me is to draw me out of myself and to laugh at myself and to laugh even at a situation. And I think humor is this vital way, I said this last night, but I think to invite to do that with each other is this, is this way, one way to care for each other because I think if you listen closely enough to laughter, you really can't hear the echoes of hope. And I think you know, this is why my friend I told you last night, you know, said to my, uh, when, when he went to Joe, Joe said, I want you to watch Seinfeld. What was he saying? He's saying, I want you to laugh. Because laughing is a way of kicking the darkness. And there's a real sense in which it's a gift when we can do that with each other. It really is. Um, that's why Chesterton said, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. <laughs> he was, he had a sense of humor. And the last one, six, here's the last one. And this is similar to four. And this can be tricky to figure out how to do, but I I believe in this. Give them grace or give us grace by giving us space. Um, Sometimes depressed and anxious people do need a little space to be alone and yet need the security that you're not going anywhere. So there's a tension between not getting all up in their grill but being content to kind of hang out on the love seat while they watch the seventh episode of New Girl and are just like in a lump and you're just kind of there giving them some space but also saying I'm not going anywhere even if you never get better I'm your friend and I love you and I I don't I'm humble enough to know there's nothing I can say or do that's going to jolt you out of depression but maybe what you need from me is for me to, in a quiet, steady, Ruth-like way, for me to commit myself to you and to give you space, but also say I'm not going anywhere. And this is what I love, that even though this is what the Lord does, even though our depression, he doesn't just come and take our depression away, but he does show up in his presence in this quiet way that says, even though your depression might never go away, I'm not going anywhere. I'll close with this. I've always loved the way Gregory of Nazianzus, because I think Jesus and what he does in John 11, he pushes us toward each other in the way that he loved his friends there. And I love the way Gregory of Nazianzus said it about Jesus. And may we be this with each other as we follow Jesus toward each other in even the most painful places. I'm going to close just with this line. He said of Jesus, he prays, but he hears prayer. And I love this. He weeps, and yet he causes tears to cease. Let's pray together.
Jesus, would you, um, you are that to us. Would you, would you let us see you in that way tonight as we begin to think about, would you give us deeper compassion, the compassion that you have for us? Would you give that toward our, help us to have that kind of self-compassion? But Lord, would you help us to have that kind of compassion for each other? And Lord, would you, as we even just scratch the surface of ways that we can begin practically loving and caring for our depressed and anxious friends, would you give us your grace and wisdom that we might move toward them as you move toward them and love them as you love them. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.